Luke, Luke chapter 6 today, and we're coming into a new year, and which just had me thinking a little bit. Um, I'm not one for making New Year's resolutions. I don't know about you guys. I, I think we really want to make changes in our lives. If, if we need to take some kind of inventory about our life, um, we should do, do that no matter what time of year it is. Repeatedly in scriptures, believers are called to look at their works, to find out how they're doing in their walk with Christ. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, in one, in, in one verse it says, Paul, uh, no, Paul writes, it says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. As believers, we're to examine ourselves on a regular basis. And the purpose isn't to question whether or not we have salvation, but to ensure that we are doing our best in our service to Jesus Christ. And it isn't an act we say for a New Year's resolution, but something we do regularly, regularly for our own benefit. And that being said, I couldn't help but take really this kind of, this time of year uh, into account when I was mulling over, uh, what should I talk about this morning? I guess I was doing a little bit of self-examination myself. You know, is there something I need? Is there something um, that I need to work on in my own Christian walk as this new year approaches? And as I was looking into that, I ended up with a list that really we couldn't cover today. But one of the things that jumped out at me uh, as I was going and reading and just kind of looking things over and I come across Luke chapter 6. Now one quick, quick piece of information here. The setting of this passage we're going to look at in Luke chapter 6 and of this sermon is different really than the Sermon on the Mount which is in, chap which is in uh, Matthew chapter 5 verse 7. They're not indisputably the same, and there's considerable difference in the content of the two of them. Therefore, a lot of scholars call the Lucan material the Sermon on the Plain, with the implication that it is, in Luke's opinion, an entirely different sermon. And why wouldn't it be? Teachers and pastors and whatnot can go from area to area and teach the same thing over and over again. And Jesus would have been going from area to area teaching the same things over and over again. So that being said, let's jump down. And we're going to start this morning with verse 27 that's under the heading, Love Your Enemies. <coughs> Why did this jump out for me personally? Because I, I struggle to love my enemies. At times, not all the time, but at times. I can only assume that it's something we can all struggle with. We can struggle, struggle to love our enemies, um, whether it's all the time or most of the time or some of the time. So maybe a good start to this new year would be to look at what Jesus has to say about who we are to be as Christians when it comes to the conflicts 
the abuses and the malice we can face at times in our lives. So I'm going to start with verse 27 and read right through to verse 36, and then we'll go back and, and talk about it. And Jesus, sa- Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withdraw your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you, and as you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lead If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful." You know, I'm glad that Jesus gives us an idea what really constitutes the enemy here to start off. If, if I had to sit and make this list, I'd be adding the guy that cut me off and gave me an inappropriate gesture or, um, you know, the person behind me at the movie theater that's rattling their candy and talking through the whole movie and, or the rude clerk at Christmas Eve that you had to deal with. Um, but Jesus gives us kind of a specific list here. Now in Luke eleven twenty eight, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So with keeping the word or obedience comes blessing. I feel pretty blessed in my life, but I have to think how many blessings have I missed out on because I'm not, not very loving at times when I should be. When I'm not very forgiving at times when I should be. You know, I read this, I hear what Jesus is saying in these verses. We can all read them. We hear the words. Yet for me, I falter and I fail so miserably to follow through with the act of actually loving my enemy. You know, in other areas, I think, you know what, I do pretty good. But here's where I can just completely crash and burn before I even have time to think about it. I react before I, I really put my brain in action. I might be able to look the part on the outside, but God knows my heart is anything but right at certain times when I'm feeling under attack. And you know what? We live in a time where we're going to be under attack more and more and more. You know what? Today's Christians are the most persecuted group on the planet. So the enemy is growing. And on top of that, Scripture says 
a time is coming, and I think it's here, that because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. That can include the church if we aren't careful. The truth is, obedience of all types, not just loving the enemy, can be an elusive issue. We can create the illusion, talk ourselves into the fact that, you know what, I'm obedient. I do everything right, but often I do everything right, right up to the point where, I'm do, where, where that doing right is now in conflict with convenience or my comfort. It's at these points in our lives that God can come along and he puts his finger on the thing or the things that are actually a challenge to our obedience, yours and mine. Things that aren't in that easy column. But they challenge us and they go against every fiber of our being. Loving our enemies is one of those things for me. Because what Jesus asks for here just doesn't seem to fit with who I am at times. And it certainly doesn't fit with the world we live in. Now, I can't say it's always a struggle, but more times than not. So why do I need to strive to live and behave in a way that runs contrary to how I feel? Why should I? Why should I strive to live and behave in a, in a way that's so contrary to the fact that I just might be justified to be angry? I just might be justified to not be loving? Why should I behave in a way that's so contrary to the world? Well, the simple fact is Jesus asks that you and I take on a behavior here that's not of this world, a character that's beyond our reach on our own strength. And why is it beyond? Because these character traits really are the very heart of God. They aren't a series of rules to be followed. If there are a series of rules, we could probably doubly be assured uh, to fall short at some point. No, you know what? They're an attitude of the heart. They're a sign of a heart that is righteous. They're a sign of the heart of God himself. You know, Jesus outlines an attitude that is really positive because that's what this is. It's a positive attitude when the, when the enemy is being so negative. It's an attitude of generosity when the enemy is being completely selfish. It's an attitude of righteousness in the middle of unrighteousness. And it's an attitude that is measured against God himself. No wonder we often fall short. No wonder I often fall short. These examples of a righteous heart are a reflection of God himself. So what do I do? 
What do I do? What do we do? There's got to be a starting point somewhere so that we can eventually find that place, that heart of God, that will allow you and allow me to truly and honestly love an enemy. And I think that place starts with forgiveness. We have to learn how to freely offer forgiveness. Even apart from who's right and who's wrong. And believe me, that's a tough one when your heart, in your heart, you know you're right. I've gone through many years ago attacks by people, church leadership, many, many years ago that was just so full of spiritual warfare. And it's funny, my, my, my mentor, and we all need mentors, we all need those people who can call us out and say, you know what you need to do, that we can trust. We all need that. And he sat me down and he said, you need to reach out to this person. And I'm like, what? This person needs to reach out to me. And he didn't force, there was nothing pushy about it at all. He just said, just think about it. And ugh, he was so right. And I'm so stubborn. I am. I got this little stubborn streak. And I'm like, okay. And I prayed about it. I took it to the Lord and I said, Lord, I'm not phoning them. And I'm not going out of my way, but if you want me to fix this, if you want me to step up, you arrange the, the meeting. You arrange for this situation. And it was in matter of days. Boom. I ran into the person. And we talked. And we at least settled some things. And it was the hardest time of my life. You know what, each one of us has to experience anger or has experienced anger and malice and bitterness because of something that has been done to us at some point in our lives. And I guarantee, guarantee, <laughs> we've all caused our fair share as well. We have all suffered pain and hurt and betrayal on some level and because of it we feel justified in feeling anger and even hatred. But Scripture says in James 1.20, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That's a tough one. I know my anger feels like it comes from righteousness. Don't you have that? I, I feel I'm angry, I'm upset, and it's righteous. But Scripture says, you know what? It's probably a lie. It's probably a lie I'm telling myself. And the fact is, nothing, nothing is going to change what I have suffered. Nothing will ever change what any of you have ever suffered. Even forgiveness doesn't change that. But what forgiveness does do is it gradually begins to change who you are and who I am. And it's in that change that we can find love where it didn't exist before. It's in forgiveness that we find 
that the attitude of our heart starts to undergo a change. You know what? The entire Bible is full, full from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, with the idea that we must learn forgiveness. Why is that? Why is that? Well, because it's the basis of the gospel message. And why does Jesus place such emphasis on loving one's enemies? It's the same answer. <laughs> Just like forgiveness. If we don't fully grasp the idea of loving even an enemy, we're apt to miss the whole point, the whole power of the gospel message. So, can we look at what Jesus says here in these verses as our legal duty then? We talked about that earlier. As a command, love your enemies. Just do it. I don't think so. I think this requires a gradual change in our inner disposition because it's that inner dispos disposition that's going to last. Duty loses its appeal over time. The heart, if it's right, won't. It'll stay steadfast. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We can read that a thousand times, but we need to understand what that meant. Because that's what truly loving an enemy looks like. We were the enemy once. I was the enemy. I didn't, we didn't deserve forgiveness then. And nobody does now. Yet God freely offered it. And he continues to offer it through Jesus Christ to all who will simply believe that's the picture of a heart that loves the enemy. And thank God for that heart. And Romans 5, 6 says that Christ died for the ungodly. You know, when I was reading that, uh, when I was putting this together, I thought, you know what? If I was to go to war with someone, this was a picture uh, of a soldier showing love to a, a fellow soldier and the enemy throws a grenade in and this soldier jumps on the grenade and takes one for the team so to speak well God's love is one step above that because God doesn't just jump on the, the, the grenade for the team God jumped on the grenade for the enemy soldier that's powerful Let's look at verse 28 and 29. It says, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. There's a lot of controversy about the striking on the cheek thing. Some say it was, in those days, all it meant was an insult. It wasn't an actual physical hit. I, I don't know. But it would certainly be it would certainly send me a little off my, 
off the edge, I guess. And Jesus never mentions anywhere that our feelings aren't legitimate, that they aren't genuine, or that what we think is mistreatment really isn't. He's not saying, well, you feel that way, but no. No, he doesn't say that. This isn't about accepting abuse at any cost. You and I have to have wisdom to know when we need to turn the other cheek and when we need to claim our rights. Paul did that when he and Silas were wrongfully beaten and they were thrown in jail. And Paul said, no, 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 no. You were wrong. And he stood up for himself. He said, you know what, let those people come down here and get me out. Because you should have never done, what, never have done what you did. So there is a time to stand up. Even Christian love must exercise discernment. What Jesus is saying is that we can and should take off or do uh, that opportunity to move past the human experience and love even when that love grates against our souls. That we pray for blessings on those people who, let's face it, are not who we want to see blessed in any way. When Jesus says we are to love our enemies, do good to those who hate us, and bless those who curse us, and pray for those who mistreat us, he's setting the bar to his level. He's showing us the heart of God toward us and asking us to meet him there. And you know what? It, it, it's going to take a step at a time. It isn't something we're going to wake up to in the morning and just be there. And it's going to take a supernatural intervention of the Holy Spirit to learn, to forgive, and to love in the way God intends us to. But you know what? One time leads to another time, leads to another time. And we have to rest in the fact that it's going to be a process. But it's a process that can start today. Today, I'm going to love my enemy. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we shall all, with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. You know what? There's lots of nice people in the world. God wants more for us and from us as Christians than just being nice. We are to be transformed, then we can be better than nice. We can learn to be truly loving in times when it's the most difficult. Why? Because we see that that is what God's grace has been for me and what it's been for you. And it's that transformation over time that shows where we are in our, in our Christ-likeness. The word Christian means little Christ. And that transformation is going to shine 
in the face of our enemies and in the face of our abusers. And it's that Christ-likeness that separates us, you and I, from the rest of the world. Anybody can be nice. It takes Jesus to transform us into true beings of love. And as the new year approaches, we can take the time and we can pray. Pray for new hearts. Pray that we're blessed with the heart of Christ. And I think it should be a great encouragement to all of us as believers that with Jesus' help, you and I can have that right heart. You know, there's a promise that God makes in Ezekiel 36, 26. And you, and you all know it, but it's a great promise. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. But we have to want that. If we stay too long in anger and bitterness with a lack of forgiveness, it's not going to happen. But on the other side, the irony is we don't grow unless we're confronted with those things that weigh so heavily on us, including the hate and the hurt and the cursing of those who profess to be your and my enemy. But through it all, you've got to remember, I know I've got to remember, we were once enemies of God. And while we were an enemy, how did he repay us? How did he get even? Well, he blessed us, and he loved us, and then he saved us. So God wants to give you and I a new heart and transform us into this image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. But I couldn't help but think, okay, what are the consequences if we choose differently? What if I choose right now, today? You know what? No, I'm not going to love my enemy. I'm hanging on to this anger. I'm gonna, I have a right to be full of hate with this person that's treated me so badly. Well, the Bible's full of examples where people are turned over, turned over to their sin, turned over to their attitude. And I believe the consequence here is, is the opposite of what we just read. We're going to be transformed one degree after another into all that's ungodly doesn't mean you're going to lose your, your salvation, but you're certainly going to be going down a dark road. Bottom line is the choice is either learn to forgive and become the lover of enemies. The choice is for me to either learn to forgive and be a lover of enemies or become an enemy myself. And it's why we're encouraged to spend time in the Word. It's why we're encouraged to come to church and spend time with each other. Do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Joshua 1.8 says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. 
you know, I used to, years ago, I went and gave, uh, and I w really wasn't a Christian at the time. But I went to a lot of the juvenile lockups in Vancouver, and I would go and talk to young men. And uh, we just talked about uh, working out in the gym and just kind of life. And I would always say to them, you know, and I never asked what they did. I didn't want to know what they did to be locked up. But I would uh, always say, you know what, when you get out, you know you can't go back to the life you had. You can't hang out with the same people. Oh, I think I can. I think I can. I just won't, you know, do what they're doing. I said, no. Thieves only like to hang out with thieves. Murderers only like to hang out with murderers. People like to have their, their lives that they're living confirmed. They want a pat on the back. They don't want anybody with them that's going to say, no, no, no. What I was trying to tell them is we inevitably become what or who we spend time with. There is no such thing as a void in the spiritual world. When one thing is diminished, something else takes its place. Slowly and insidiously, where there was once light, darkness will creep in. Where the Spirit of God once ruled, the flesh and all that's fallen will inevitably take root. So if we cling to anger and we cling to hatred and we push love aside, we can't become no better than those who caused it to us because we're going to be in such a dark place that we're going to cause it to someone else. Those who abuse, those who are full of malice, who set themselves up as an enemy, you know what? They have such little chance of ever coming out of that darkness if somebody, somebody isn't showing them the light. How do you know love if no one's ever shown it to you? Sometimes just that little bit can make a difference in someone's life. You know, I look at the world today. You guys read the news. We watch what's going on. And what do we see filling the void that the world has created? By asking God to leave. Darkness and more darkness and more darkness. The enemy that Jesus is referring to here in these passages has grown exponentially in ways today that certainly were not even comprehensible in those days. Really, that weren't even comprehensible a mere few years ago. We have enemies now that we have never seen in person. We will never see in person. Enemies that want your credit card number, my credit card number, our computer information, our banking information. Enemies that seek to extort money out of you and I by telling us we, oh, we've committed tax fraud. Many times I've taken calls that I knew were fraudulent. And you know what? On those good days when I'm feeling loving uh, and they catch me at the right time, I'm like, you know what? I'm sharing the gospel. And they get off the phone so quick. <laughs> but you know what? Not that long ago was that time I lost my cool completely. Needing to get on? I need to get onto your computer. 
And I listened and I listened and I went ballistic. And as soon as I hung up, I felt so convicted. What did I gain? What did they gain? Because they're not listening to me. And the biggest thing, what did God gain? Paul writes in 2 Timothy, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. You know, a few years ago we had a, um, when we were having a, a major drought, and I think we had the fire that was over here, and, and um, you know, people were asked to just be careful. Be careful if you're a smoker, what you do with your cigarette butt. And I remember reading an article, or it's on the news, about a woman who, um, and uh, I was a smoker, Susan and I both, 20 years ago or more. So I have an understanding, and people get into habits within the habit, and a woman's driving her car, she has a business, she has a business logo on the side of her car, and she's smoking a cigarette, and somebody sees her, does do that out the window. How dangerous is that? Social media destroyed her. Destroyed her. That's what we live in now. And there's part of me that walks around in fear of standing up and saying the wrong thing. I could lose my job. I could lose my reputation. And then I get wound up over it. And I'm like, you know what? I don't care anymore. I need to stand up more than I do. And as a church, it's easy for us to withdraw and become cynical and angry and spiteful toward the people in the world that are, that are becoming this negative group. When in fact, we need to just be the opposite. I was just listening to a, a gentleman speak on, uh, he's a Christian, he's a pastor, he's outspoken, um, but he was told he couldn't come to a, a church and, and engage in a conversation with the church. They said, yeah, we don't allow anybody outside the church to come in. Really? Wow. No, we close the door, we're a closed group. You know, the enemy has a way of catching us at just the right moment when our defenses are the weakest, and before we know it, we're reacting in a way, every way, any way, except a loving way. But does that mean we've got to be a footstool for the enemy? No. This passage this morning isn't about you and I being passive and weak as we face the enemy. There's nothing passive or weak about Christ. Nothing. I'd have been crying like a, a baby if I was being whipped. We just aren't to repay evil with more of the same. 1 Peter 3.9 says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but to the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, but his lips from speaking deceit. 
Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I don't want the face of the Lord against me. Verses 29 to 30 says, To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the, uh, offer the other also. And from, who, and from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. You know, Jesus tells those who hear, turn the other cheek. Give more than is taken. Provide what is needed and let go of what is owed. You know what? All these things, all those things are a reflection of who God the Father has been to you and been to me. How so? When we strike out with him, at him in anger. You know, I'm so angry with God. This is happening in my life. I'm so angry with God. Or I'm so frustrated with him. Does he turn the other cheek? No. One of my favorite verses, Isaiah 65, 2. I spread out my hands all day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that's not good, following their own devices. You know what? That's an example of turning the, cheek, the other cheek. We often take from him what isn't, wasn't, what isn't ours, don't we? What, that, what might that be? How many times do we secretly seek our own glory? and ignore the fact that it really belongs to him. Yet he's forgiving and gracious and blesses us with more than we deserve. He listens to our prayers and petitions and gives all we need and more. And what has he freely given us? Salvation in Jesus Christ. He doesn't take back or demand repayment for that. He simply asks you and I that we act like the sons and daughters that we are that we, like him, are kind to the ungrateful and the evil, that we, like him, are merciful. Verse 31 says, And as you wish that others would do to you, do unto them. Now, Jesus didn't make that up. It wasn't something new that he was saying here. Similar teaching had been around for a long time. But what Jesus did is he put a positive spin on it. What do I mean? He put it in a positive sense, not just a negative. It was no longer about hitting someone, or not hitting someone, pardon me, because you don't want them to hit you. His perspective was that whatever you would like people to do to you, do that to them. How would you like them to treat you when you've made a mistake? Do you want them to be kind and understanding and sympathetic? It's the way we are to treat people. And so he turns it from a negative to a positive. So it leads us into an actual positive action rather than just refrain, refraining from doing negative things. Think of the implication uh, that that statement na has now that Jesus has changed it. He made the command much broader. It's the difference between the decision not to break, let's say, a traffic law and doing something positive like stopping and helping a stranded motorist. We are now called to feel empathy 
to reach out, to stand in one another's shoes and act accordingly. We're not a call, call to just merely avoid what we know is wrong, but to do what we know is right and to act in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. Verse 32 to 34, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to, tho to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners led to lend to sinners to get back the same amount. We shouldn't think that we are somehow being virtuous <laughs> and imitating Jesus if, we're merely, uh, if we merely return the love that's given to you and I. Remember, Jesus is teaching all who hear here that the character of the citizens of his kingdom, the character of God, shouldn't, or he's teaching the character of God and shouldn't we expect that character to be different from the character we see in the world? There's a lot of good reasons why you and I should be expected to do good things, to be more loving than the world. We claim to have something that others don't have. We claim to be renewed reborn, repentant, and redeemed by Jesus Christ. We claim to have a power that others don't have, that we can do all, through, all things through Christ who strengthens us. We claim to have the Spirit of God dwelling within us, that he comforts us, directs us, speaks with us, empowers us. You and I claim to have a better future than others do, that we are citizens of heaven and sons and daughters of the Most High, and you take all that in, and put it together, you'd think that I could love my enemies, that I could do good, that I could lend, expecting nothing in return, that I would be kind to the ungrateful. Not sometimes, but all the time. That I'd be great at showing mercy because so much mercy has been shown to me. But I don't. I think Paul says it so well in Romans 7, verse 15 to 20, and I've cut it down a little bit because it kind of rambles a little. God bless Paul. Um, but he says, I do not understand what I do. For what I, what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do, as it is, I know it, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is, in my sinful, na sinful nature. He goes on to say, I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. The truth is, there's nothing good in any of us that is not a result of God. If you or I want to love our enemies and do good to those who hate us, we have to die to self more and more every day. We have to do battle every day to take captive every thought in order to obey Jesus Christ. And as I read Paul's confession, I think, you know what? That's our confession as well. That's my confession. I don't think I've ever met a fellow Christian that doesn't come face to face with a challenge in their walk. We know how we should respond, yet we find ourselves knee deep in the flesh. 
And it's one thing when the enemy, uh, enemies we face are from the world, but really, why would we expect righteous behavior from anyone who doesn't know or understand even what it is? After all, the world operates on a different level. When Christ came into your heart and my heart, the veil was lifted. And our sight changed. If a brother in Christ wrongs us, you know what? We have the word. We have our mentors that we can seek counsel from. We know, or at least we can depend on being shown in a graceful, loving way what we have to do and how we have to act to rectify any internal disagreements we might have. And then we can move on. But because the world sees things differently through this fog, I could tell you a story about that, but we're running out of time. Those of the world react differently. So it's your choice and my choice as to whether we want to react in a manner or in a like manner to the world or just take a moment and, a, and react in a way that glorifies God. I've done both. I've been there. And you know what? The one feels so good in my flesh in the moment but always comes with a price. This price tag of regret later on that I carry around day after day. Why did I react that way? And the other way requires my humility and my forgiveness and it has no guarantee of any reciprocal attitude on the part of the other person. And it's hard at times. It's hard. But it comes with such a sense of peace afterward, knowing that God would approve. So I'm going to call the worship team back up 